Let me take this opportunity to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas, and I invite you to turn to the passage of Scripture that tells us why we can, in fact, experience joy, merriment this holiday season. Turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, which is an account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we will be this evening. So let's hear God's word together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to, uh, to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, many of us have experienced many Christmases and the joy of Christmas for over the course of many years and decades. Uh, we pray, though, that the joy of Christmas, the joy of the incarnation would be fresh this evening. Uh, we pray that we would see the coming of the Son with fresh eyes, and uh, we ask that you would make our hearts receptive to the glorious truth of the Incarnation. Uh, we pray that you'd grant us to rejoice in Jesus and see that in him we have every reason to be glad. Uh, we pray, Lord, make us receptive for our good and your glory. Amen. So I will quote just a few lines from some well-known Christmas songs, and as I quote these lines, I want you to tell me what the common theme, what the common thread is. Here we go. Ready? Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Second one. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let, let earth receive her king. Third. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Fourth. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. hope that last one really made the point emphatically. 
what thread runs through those lines? The theme of gladness, celebration, rejoicing. Uh, the traditional carols and songs that we sing this time of year uh, consistently invite us to be glad, to rejoice, to celebrate. Everything about Christmas, its trappings are an invitation to be glad. We have these bright colored gifts that we stuff under a tree in our homes. All the houses are draped with lights. There are festive greens and reds. Just look around. There's feasting, and there's singing, and there's gift-giving, and there's a general spirit of playfulness, and if you're young, you get to stay up late. Uh, there are a lot of things about Christmas that scream, rejoice, celebrate. They are an invitation to be glad. Uh, but it's for that reason that if you are not glad, if your heart is joyless, you feel the absence of joy more deeply this time of year. It's more conspicuous when everything around you says rejoice. Stand in wonder uh, at what is happening. If you're joyless, it's, you feel the disconnect a little bit more. Some of you may identify, I hope you don't identify, with the individual who wrote these lines. Uh, Jared Wilson describes his experience of uh, Christmas as a relatively young man. And he says, Christmas would come around each year, and I was supposed to feel peace and joy. But I just went through, through it all with a low-grade depression because I was never sure if I was doing it right. The sentimentality of the season felt strangely at odds with the spiritual discord inside of me. I wonder if you can connect with that disconnect between the joy and celebration around you and the joylessness of your heart. One of the great questions then that we can ask at Christmas is how, we, how do we bridge that gap between the joy and celebration of Christmas and the joylessness of our heart. All human beings are on a quest for joy, desire to be glad, uh, to experience a wonderful life. But where do we find joy? And intriguingly, Luke's account of the birth of Jesus connects the coming of the Son of God to our quest for joy. We see that our longing to be glad, to celebrate, have something to celebrate, is connected to Jesus. Joy and Jesus go together, Luke tells us in this passage, and we'll consider how. Now, th this account of the birth of Jesus begins with a very imposing uh, individual, the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. There was arguably no one as powerful in the first century as Caesar Augustus. Now, the Roman Empire had been experiencing a period of intense civil war over, again, many years, and Caesar Augustus was the one who brought p political stability and peace to the Roman Empire at the cost of her liberties in some ways, but he was the one who brought peace. And he, and he said of himself that he found Rome a city built in brick, and he left it a city built in marble. Modest man, uh, Caesar Augustus. Uh, notice that his calls for uh, a census, that's what the registration refers to, uh, has ripple effects that go hundreds and thousands of miles away. Here is a man who through his decrees, through his words, can influence the lives of people hundreds of miles away. A very powerful emperor was Caesar Augustus. And it is his decrees that bring about the birth of Christ in the city of Bethlehem. Of course, God uses the decrees of Caesar to accomplish that, but from a human standpoint, it was this call that brings about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We're told that the adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph, was uh, from Nazareth, but because his hometown is Bethlehem, 
uh, the royal city associated with Israel's great king, King David. He has to travel with Mary, who is pregnant, to Bethlehem. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, it's time for her to give birth. But Luke underscores for us the fact that Joseph comes from the royal line. And Jesus' birth in Bethlehem connects him to King David. God had promised King David that he would raise up for Israel and for the world a king who would bring peace. And Luke is telling us in a variety of ways through these details, that king has come on the scene. But what's striking about the birth of the Messiah, Israel's king and the world's true king, are the comparatively humble circumstances into which he is born. According to our values, if the Son of God is going to come to this world, presumably we would, might think he would come and identify with the strong, with the well-connected, with the powerful. But instead, he comes to an obscure family in a backwater of the empire. And he is born, we're told, uh, into a, to an, a, a humble abode where there wasn't even room for him in the inn. Now, that word that's translated in refers to the guest room in a first century home in Palestine. A typical home in Palestine during this period was a rectangle. It had three sections. One section on one side was for guests. There was a central area, and there was a, the, the last third was a stable, and there was a little wall that would separate the stable from the central area. And so Jesus, we're being told, there wasn't room for them in the guest room, but he was still in a house. Shouldn't think that there wasn't room for them in a home. He was still in the house, just not in the guest room. Uh, nevertheless, we do see that when the Son of God comes, he comes to us in humble circumstances. He identifies with the nobodies, the uh, peripheral, the obscure people of the world. And so we have this picture of two kings. We have Caesar Augustus reigning in Rome. When he speaks, there are ripple effects thousands of miles away. The Roman legions are at his fingertips to do with what he will. And then there is the birth of Jesus, put in a feeding trough in an obscure part of the world to an obscure family of little obvious significance. If you were at this moment in time, at this moment in history, to step out of the world and out of history and to look at everything that is happening in the first century, and you were to put your finger on the most significant person alive, in the most significant place, in the most significant event, that's going on right now in the first century. What would you say is the most significant person? Well, you'd probably look at the grandeur of Rome and Caesar Augustus and say, that's where, that's where the power is. That's where the action is. This is what is going to shape the destiny of humanity. But God is working in the secret, quiet, out-of-the-way places as he does. And he is working through this baby that has been born to an obscure family. What does that reveal about God? It, it underscores how counterintuitive are the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. His system of values are uh, frequently different than our system of values. Up is down with us and so on, and down is up. Uh, he, there's a different standard of judgment. We see this even with the initial messengers that he appoints. Shepherds. In the first century, shepherds were not, were not well liked. Society was suspicious of them. Their testimony wasn't accepted in the courtroom. Uh, they were viewed with some suspicion. There's a rabbi in the third century who interestingly comments on the 23rd Psalm. And he says of shepherds, 
There is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. So their testimony is suspect. They're on the periphery of society. And these are the people that God chooses as his messengers, messengers of good news to Joseph and Mary. Again, God's ways are counterintuitive, unexpected. His ways go against the grain of human expectations and values. His wisdom is higher than our wisdom. We think to be great means to command others. God tells us that greatness means serving others. So often our intuitions and assumptions don't align with God. Now, what does this imply about joy? Well, it means that if we are as wrong-headed about joy as we are so many other things, then maybe we don't know how to find joy. Maybe our assumptions about how we can discover joy are all wrong. Maybe the first step towards finding joy is recognizing that we don't even know how to get it. And we need God to teach us, to take us by the hand, as it were, and lead us to the paths that lead to true joy. Joy, it can be found, but not where we often think it can be found. So the first seven verses describe for us the birth of Jesus. God's son has come. Then in the following section in Luke, verses 8 through 14, we see the significance of his coming. It's one thing to say something happened. It's another thing to understand its significance. And it's an angelic messenger who appears to these shepherds at night that declares the significance of the birth of Jesus. And when he comes, this is a spectacular moment. The angel arrives on the scene and the glory, the dazzling brightness of God's intrinsic majesty is on display. Nighttime becomes daytime as the glory of God shines and these shepherds are unsettled by this display of the glory of God. And the angel has to reassure them, as is often the case in scripture, you're fine, Fear not, for behold, instead of fearing, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You don't need to be scared. There is great news, the best news that has ever been declared to humanity. And when you understand that news, that is going to cause your heart to soar. And no, it's not simply joy, it is great joy. What I'm about to tell you will cause your heart to soar with gladness, but not just your heart. Notice verse 10. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for the shepherds, for Israel, and ultimately for the world. The news that is declared by the angel brings gladness to our hearts when we understand it and believe it. Now before we move on to verse 11 to consider what that good news is that causes our hearts to soar, it's important to underscore an implication of verse 10, namely joy can be found. Gladness of heart, amazement, delight can be found. God's word bears witness to us that gladness is obtainable. And we need to emphasize this point because it's easy to become cynical about the possibility of finding gladness. You get to a certain age and you feel that perhaps your, your initial youthful expectation that you could have joy in life was misguided. We settle into middle age and we give up on joy. Perhaps when we were younger, we thought that we can find it perhaps in the right marriage, in a satisfying career, in this and that. But we've overturned many stones in life, and we've found a measure of satisfaction in this and that. But, but joy has proven to be elusive. And many come to the conclusion that ultimately joy can't be found. 
because they haven't found it in created pleasure. Well, verse 10 is saying, yes, it may not be found in created pleasures, but joy can be found if we look where God has put it. The question is, where has he put it? Verse 11 tells us, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Joy is connected to Jesus, to his person and to his work. Jesus, as, as the angel describes him, is Christ, that is the Messiah, the King. About a thousand years before, as we've noted, God promised King David of Israel that he would send him his, his, a son who would reign forever and ever. And he would bring peace to the nation and he would bring peace to the world. That king that a weary world, a sinful world, a dark world has been waiting for, has come. The king has come. But he is more than simply one more human king. Notice the language of verse 11. He is Christ, not Christ of the Lord, the king who belongs to the Lord. He is Christ, the Lord. The Christ is also the Lord, which is a way of underscoring the divinity of Jesus. This is not simply one man being born. This is God in the flesh coming to us to bring his blessing. This is the eternal son of God coming down in the birth of Jesus. Without ceasing to be God, he becomes man. And this is the climax of human history. This is the climactic moment in all of history. And we see something of the significance of this event when after announcing this good news, that one angel is surrounded by a battalion of other singing angels. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When Jesus is born, heaven comes down and peers at this little baby in the feeding trough. And all of heaven, the angelic host, breaks out in praise and adoration to God because the climax of his saving purpose has come. All of heaven bursts forth in song and declares to humanity that there is peace for all those who experience the salvation of this king. I don't know if you enjoy reading history, studying the great events of history. I do to an extent. I enjoy looking at what brought them about and what the consequences of those events were. If you study World War II, for example, uh, you know that D-Day is one of the great turning points of that war when the Allies were able to get a foothold in continental Europe and the tide turned against Germany. But if you were to take a step back and you were to look at the totality of history to this point and you had to identify the single most significant historical event what event would you choose? Unaided by God's revelation, it would be difficult to identify. But the coming of the angels draws a bright line under what is the most significant moment in human history. It is the moment when God himself comes down to us to rescue us and bring us to himself. This evening you wonder, does God care about me? Do my heartaches matter to him? The answer is emphatically yes. How do we see that? We see that because God himself came down to man to rescue us, meet our need, and bring us back to himself. Single most significant event in history. Now, why is it 
that the king who is also the Lord has come down to us. Yes, God has come down, but what is his purpose? Look at verse 11. He came down not only as Christ the Lord, but as a savior. What does that imply about us? If he is a savior, then what do we need? Rescuing. Have you ever noticed that certain gifts don't just meet a need that you know you have, but they also reveal something about you that you may not have known about yourself? For instance, if somebody gives you this Christmas a gym membership, they're they're not just meeting a need, but they're also communicating something to you that you may not have been aware of. You need to spend more time, perhaps, on a treadmill, right? The gift is revelatory. It shows you something about yourself that you need to know that maybe you didn't know. Well, the same way God's gift of salvation in Jesus meets a need, but it also helps us to to see the need more clearly. What do we fundamentally need as human beings? What do we most deeply need? And according to Scripture, we most deeply need a Savior. What does that reveal about us? We are a people in need of rescue. Well, what do we need to be saved from? What do we need to be saved from? And the Bible's answer is clear. Sin, guilt, and the judgment of God. The truth about us, it's an uncomfortable truth, but the truth about us nonetheless is that instead of honoring our creator, putting him first in our lives and submitting joyfully to him and experiencing life in fellowship with him, we have rebelled against the creator. And because he is just and good, our relationship with him is severed and we stand condemned under his judgment. Our lives are flowing to that terrible day when we will stand before the judgment seat of God Almighty and give an account for our lives. What we need to be rescued from is our guilt. It's not just that we feel guilty, it's that we are guilty in the sight of God. Now, when you say that to modern people, there's an air of implausibility to the Bible's teaching about our deepest need. And part of the reason to modern ears that sounds implausible is because modern men and women put the self at the center of life and everything. The self is free to decide how it approaches God or not, to do what it wants as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, the, the, the assumption is that we have a kind of live and let live relationship with God. He does what he does, I do what I do. And if that's your picture of reality and your relationship to God in the world, then you have no way of understanding your moral accountability to God. It's not obvious why there is an obligation to obey. Uh, this way of thinking about things, I think, is well captured by a line from Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, which was a thing a few years ago. Uh, She writes, you have every right to, to cherry pick when it comes to moving your spirit and finding your peace in God. In other words, she's saying you are free to determine the terms by which you approach God. It's entirely up to you. Do what you want. And again, that assumes the self is at the center. But this is not true and radically unbiblical. The biblical perspective is that in the beginning, God. Before there was anything, archangels and butterflies, human beings, waterfalls, there was the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is at the center of everything. 
And out of his fullness, the triune God summons all things into existence, and he makes man in his image, and man owes his creator everything. Every breath that we have, every gift that we have, our capacity for moral discrimination, judging right and wrong, all of it comes finally from God. He made us. We don't reflect on that truth enough. You're a creature. You're made. And if God has made you, then he owns you. And you, have a, you are morally accountable to him. And you ought to honor him and worship him and obey God as the center of your existence. And it is unspeakably evil to put yourself in the place of God, but that is precisely what each one of us has done. Instead of gladly submitting to our creator, we have said we will define right and wrong for ourselves. We have rebelled against the king, our maker, and we are guilty in his sight, moving towards judgment. That's our fundamental need. And we can't understand the joy of Christmas and the joy of salvation without staring hard at that fundamental reality about life. This is the essence of the human tragedy. We are rebels separated from God, approaching judgment. And we can't do anything about that situation on our own. But the good news announced by the angel is that we don't have to do anything to put that right. God himself has come down to us in his son Jesus to bring us up to him. Jesus was born that he might taste death, that he might endure the judgment and the condemnation of God, that we might be pardoned, cleansed of all guilt and sin, and reconciled to God. That's what Jesus comes down to do. And recognize that in his coming, God himself comes. So when Jesus acts to bring salvation, God himself is acting on our behalf. And because God is the one who is acting on our behalf, we can be absolutely confident that his salvation is effective, that those whom he intends to save, he will indeed save because he is God. It's no small comfort when you come to the end of life, all of it is behind you, and eternity is in front of you. And you consider the great fact that God himself has come into this world to take your punishment upon his place. And if God has acted to save you, then you will be saved. That's the good news that we rejoice in at Christmas. That's the good news that should cause our hearts to soar. Jesus Christ has addressed our deepest need. He has taken away our guilt, freed us from the judgment to God, uh, the judgment to come and reconciled us to God. We have a reason to rejoice when we understand that all of our guilt has been wiped away and we've been reconciled to God. The uh, 16th century reformer Martin Luther, with his characteristic gusto, put it this way, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy very forceful way of putting it. If I could know that my creator was for me, that there was peace between me and God, then my joy would be so great I could stand on my head. And that's what we see again and again in scripture. There's a connection between God's salvation and our joy. Psalm 118 verses 14 and 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. 
He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are those, happy, joyful are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Who's happy? Who's blessed? The person against whom God doesn't charge their guilt and sin against them. All of their past failures and their present failures and the future failures wiped away. And they have peace with God Almighty. That is a person who has a reason to rejoice tonight. If that's you, you have a reason to rejoice tonight. And just as all of Scripture connects salvation and joy, uh, Luke's gospel does as well. Not just in the passage we're looking at, but in several other places also. Look at Luke 10, verse 20. Here's what Jesus says. His disciples have been given authority over the powers of darkness. They're liberating people from demonic oppression. And they're rejoicing in the fact But here's what Jesus says to them. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. You want to know what you should rejoice of? Not not, not that the powers of darkness are subject to you. You want to know what you should really rejoice about? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Usefulness to God and and seeing him use you to bring blessing to others. That's a great thing to, that's a reason to rejoice. But Jesus says the fundamental thing is that your name is written in the book of life. To know whether, that, whether you live or die, you have peace with God. He is your God and nothing can separate you from his love. That should cause your heart to soar this day. So the salvation that Jesus brings is a source of joy because his salvation rescues us from our deepest need. It's like waking up from a nightmare and discovering all is well. The salvation of Jesus should cause us to rejoice also because it gives us Jesus. Salvation is not just about rescue from judgment and sin. The reason it's good news that those things have been taken away is because now we can have a relationship with God. Now we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Scripture says that Jesus is the one who is supremely glad supremely joyful. Psalm 45, 7 speaks of Jesus, and it says, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. When you think of Jesus, do you think of one who is supremely joyful? In Mark chapter 2, he tells his disciples that while he's on earth and they're with him, it's inappropriate for them to fast. Because when he's present, That is not a time for fasting. That is a time for feasting and celebration. Where Jesus is, there is joy. And there is joy in his presence because to be in his presence is to be in the very presence of God. Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 verse 11. To be in the presence of God, to have a relationship with God, is to know the joy that we were created as his image bearers to know. And that joy is available for all those who trust in Jesus tonight. Well, we understand how life-giving good relationships can be with fellow human beings. 
When you spend an evening with an old friend in conversation, we know how that refreshes us, brings us gladness. When you discover that the girl you love loves you back, we know the exhilaration and the joy of that, right? Even at a human level, we can get a glimpse of how good life can be with the right relationships. Well, how much more is that true for our relationship with God? To walk in fellowship with Jesus, to bask in his love, to know that he's walking with you through all the twists and turns of life, that is a reason to rejoice. The highest good that Jesus can give us is himself, and that is exactly what he does. Again and again in scripture, God says to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people. And through Jesus, he is our God and we are his people. We have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice because the salvation of Jesus doesn't simply rescue us from sin, but it enables us to live a new and selfless life for his glory. Obedience to God is not simply something we have to do. It's what makes the good life the good life. It is itself a joy. To trust in Jesus means that you are invited to take part in this great story where God is bringing salvation to the world and you get to be a part of that story in your own little way. His plan is to use you to bring blessing to others. So following Jesus means turning away from a life of selfish pursuits, a life of food and drink and Netflix, passive self-indulgence, to a life of sacrificial service to others, for the glory of God, that's the good life. That's the joyful life. And lastly, Jesus' salvation is a reason to rejoice because it means that the darkness of this world and your heartaches that you've brought with you tonight are passing things. A day is coming when the darkness will pass and our hearts will be unburdened from the sorrows of this life. The day is coming when our king will return in glory and splendor and everything will be made new. And that is absolutely certain. There's a moment in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you like the Lord of the Rings. You should. Um, there's a moment in Lord of the Rings where one of the characters, Samwise Gamgee, is walking through the desolate wasteland that is Mordor. It's a dark, dangerous place. He has no real chance of surviving the ordeal that he's going through. And in just that moment, we're told, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. What is expressed here is not simply literary sentimentality. What is expressed here is the, the reality of the gospel. That when Jesus comes, the darkness will fade away forever and ever. And the little joy and celebration that we have once a year, which in this life is the exceptional thing rather than the normal thing, will be the normal thing in the world to come. Salvation of Jesus means that there is indeed joy to the world and there will go on being joy forever and ever as this creation and humanity is renewed by our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look to Jesus, who he is and the salvation that he has brought to the world, this evening every person has a reason to rejoice if they have tasted that salvation. 
all of us should be singing and rejoicing the praises of our Savior. And let me say to those of you who are here tonight and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this good news is for you. I implore you on behalf of God to be reconciled to God by trusting in his Son, Jesus Christ. God has come down to us in our sin and plight and need because it's not God's desire for you to die in your sins. It's not God's will that you should perish. It's God's will that you should be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. So this evening, if you are not trusting in Jesus, if you have not accepted this as true, if you are not recognizing your need for a savior, God appeals to you and calls you to trust in Jesus and find forgiveness and the joy that scripture describes. This salvation is held out by the living God for you tonight. Trust in Jesus and live. Let me wish you in light of this passage, in the very deepest sense, we wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see the depth of your love, the greatness of your salvation. And as we behold all that you've accomplished for us, change us, Lord, so that we are increasingly like you, living life on the principle of spending ourselves for others, not hoarding and taking. Thank you, Lord, for the mercies you've shown us. Let the joy of your salvation be in our hearts this evening. Amen.